Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to the August 2nd edition of the Tycoonist Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Berner. Whether you're sitting in traffic or just sitting in front of a mind-numbing Excel spreadsheet, I hope your day is going not too terribly. If this is your first time listening to this, just want to let you know, it's me sitting here reading the articles in the weekly newsletter. So, if you don't want to listen to my voice, feel free to skip ahead and read them for yourself. This week's lineup is looking pretty sweet, actually. First cover story about the Boston Beer Company was actually written by an alcohol industry insider who is a fan of this newsletter. So, if you ever have any ideas yourself, any hot takes, any perspectives on business, entrepreneurship, investing, whatever, as long as it's related to business, feel free to hit me up. There's a link in the bottom of this newsletter. Next up, we got the Chinese stock market crash, for those of you who have been following that. There's a hot take on that. And lastly, book review on Cable Cowboy, the story of John Malone and the cable industry. Before we get into that, just want to let you know about a new YouTube series that is just coming out today called Due Diligence. First episode involves me journeying to the Crocs store to learn more about the business. I had a lot of fun filming this mini documentary. I hope you enjoy it. There will be more of these. Let me know what you think. Link to that in the newsletter. Find it on YouTube. Be sure to follow me there as well. And speaking of Crocs, I recently conducted a poll on public.com, the social investing app, gauging people's attitudes about the shoe. If you want to follow me on public, be sure to sign up using the link provided in the newsletter. If you fund your account with as little as a dollar, you have a chance to win up to $50 in free stock. Plus, it helps support this content. Sam, don't look very smart. It's hard to imagine how, in a few short years, a strange FMB category offshoot grew to be larger than the entire craft beer segment. Flavored malt beverages, think Smirnoff Ice and Cayman Jack, have been on the uptrend for years now, and it's mostly thanks to hard seltzers. But now, those same massive growth numbers have come to bite Boston Beer Company's butt. Originally known as the maker of Samuel Adams' lineup of craft beers, among other brands, their massive growth of late has come largely from their truly hard seltzer lineup. But unless you happen to live under a rock or just somehow miss the latest barrage of news, their meteoric rise this year, up 37.5% year-to-date at its peak in April, has come crashing down. Hard. As of market close on July 26th, Sam is down 44% from April's high. That's a loss of $580 to an abysmal $726 a share. But why should you care? And what could make this a potential opportunity? Let me explain. With a forward price-to-earnings ratio of over 60 times earnings, there is no question that Sam was overvalued in April. Unless the 100% plus growth rate per year of hard seltzers could continue unabated for another five years, despite already being over 10% of the overall beer market, and that math doesn't add up, there is bound to be a serious pullback. Those of us in the business, and anyone with common sense, 
No, you can't keep doubling a category ad nauseum. It was leading into the perfect storm of one slipped earnings call. No matter how good the money looks, reality eventually has to set back in. And so when Sam released their Q2 results and showed what liquor stores numbers had been saying for the better part of two months, it took most of the investing world by surprise. Sam's CEO, David Berwick, even went so far as to say their forecasting made management not, quote, look too smart. But he's confirmed they're getting out of the forecasting game and instead sticking to the fundamentals of running a beer company. Thank God. But now that the stock has taken a quick dip and calmed itself down, what does that look like now? And is the current 30 times forward PE really worthy of a true investor's notice? Just look at the parts of the whole. Number one, the hard seltzer category. Yeah, the very thing we just tore to shreds and which dropped their stock 40%. They may not be able to see triple-digit figure growth anytime soon, but they did see top-line growth at 33%. That's a massive number. And they're clawing more market share from White Claw every day. The next quarter's numbers you see very well may have truly a number one place. And between them, they own the segment, with about 75% total share between them. Number two, on-premise growth. That's bars and restaurant folks. Right now, 90% hard seltzer volume is in take-home packages, and people are heading back to bars and restaurants in droves. Truly, last I checked, is the only keg option available, and they have both unflavored and berry. Sam already knows on-premise is key for future hard seltzer growth, and they have first mover's advantage. Number three, winning stable. Yeah, they do more than truly. Talking about 100% growth, Twisted Tea has been absolutely kicking ass the past five years itself. And while volume isn't at hard seltzer's numbers, hard tea FMBs are on a similar track. And the market segment ain't your sleeveless V-neck t-shirt clad frat boys sucking them down. Yet. It's skewing toward good old boys watching NASCAR, a decidedly more loyal market segment. Number four, losers priced in. Speaking of the rest of their stable of products, Boston Beer and Angry Orchard's secular declines are well-documented and already priced in. Additional slippage is expected, and if they see a turnaround like some other national brewers are seeing, we're looking at you, New Belgium, it'll be a pure bonus. Number five, new growth. With their purchase of Dogfish Head and subsequent line pricing of their flagship and everyday lines with national craft pricing, additional marketing, and boots-on-the-ground rep focus, that volume will do nothing but grow for the next five-plus years. In addition to that, they've also recently made investments in R&D for cannabis drinks as well as a strategic partnership with Beam Suntory, Jim Beam's owner, for cross-category products. Think Truly Vodka and Saza Tequila RTD canned cocktails. But can all of this bring the bull investor back to the sort of price seen earlier this year? To be honest, not likely anytime soon. When we see these sort of shots into the stratosphere and overvaluation run amok, the crash back down usually teaches traders a lesson for a while. But they have short memories.
Seeing red, Chinese stocks crash. What Xi Jinping giveth, Xi Jinping taketh away. The foreign investors who kind of just forgot about the whole president for life thing, i.e. dictatorship, sure got a rude awakening over the last week. Shareholders of some Chinese companies, especially in for-profit education, have completely lost their asses. With Tal Education and New Oriental Education both down over 70% within two trading days. There's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with the not-so-obvious. Why are Westerners, who have never even been to China, buying Chinese stocks in the first place? Seems difficult to follow Peter Lynch's advice to know what you own if you've never ripped a shot of Baiju or pulled a KTV all-nighter. As it happens, yours truly did, in fact, briefly live in China six years ago. But even I don't know squat about their stock market. Club scene's 10 out of 10, though. Here's the thing. While there are over 4,000 publicly traded Chinese companies, less than 250 of them are listed on U.S. exchanges. China generally forbids direct foreign ownership. To get around this, some large Chinese companies have set up separate investment vehicles that trade on American exchanges. This is where shit gets shady. Take Alibaba. Foreign investors who purchase Baba shares don't actually own part of Alibaba. That is to say, they have no claim on the company's assets. Instead, investors own part of a variable interest entity, or VIE, registered in the Cayman Islands that contracts with Alibaba, which theoretically allows them to indirectly partake in the company's profits. All this is detailed in Alibaba's convoluted annual report, 500 pages of dense legalese. As a comparison, Costco's 2020 annual report is 84 pages. Somehow, I doubt very many, quote, Alibaba stockholders have actually read the thing. As Winston Churchill said, this report, by its very length, defends itself against the risk of being read. Now, even though VIEs were notoriously used by Enron to hide losses, bulls insist it's no biggie with Chinese companies. But what if one day, President for Life Xi wakes up on the wrong side of the bed in Zhongnanhai and decides to cancel my equity? No more VIE for you. Now those fears are breaking into the mainstream. Hate to say I told you so, but I've been talking about these risks for eight months now including recently. Bulls say China would never do such a thing. But if you look at history, authoritarian governments sport a long track record of seizing wealth and nationalizing businesses when it's convenient for them. If you've ever seen The Godfather Part 2, you'll know that many Americans once staked their fortunes on Cuba. When Fidel rolled in, they all watched their money go bye-bye. On the other hand, maybe this is just one big overreaction. If the Kathy Bay Wood contrarian indicator is any sign, we should all be jumping into Chinese stocks right about now. Wood just panic sold all of her fund's Chinese holdings, by the way. A few of these Chinese stocks actually look like incredible bargains on paper. New Oriental Education, for example, is selling for 3.8 billion USD with over 1.3 billion in net cash on the books. At this price, you're essentially getting whatever is left of the business for free. That is, if you trust the accounting in their 330-page annual report. 
Clearly, there's a risk-reward setup here. If President for Life Xi takes a chill pill and everything calms down, the upside could be enormous for some stocks. Could the CCP seize or shut down some of these companies one day? Yeah, that's definitely a non-zero possibility over my lifespan. But will it happen within the next year or two? My guess is probably not. In its downgrade of Chinese education stocks, J.P. Morgan researchers called the sector, quote, uninvestable. Correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't a lot of people saying the exact same thing about energy not that long ago? Either way, it's going to be interesting. Book Review Cable Cowboy Not many people my age are familiar with the name John Malone. After all, we're the generation credited, or blamed, for the steady erosion of the cable business that he led for over two decades. In fact, I don't know a single millennial that pays for cable television. Even so, Malone still commands an army of aging fanboys on the FinTwit circuit owing to his prowess in generating shareholder gains, bro. Under Malone's watch, Telecommunications Inc., or TCI, went from $0.75 a share in 1973 to $4,184 a share by 1997, a 5,578% increase. That made it the best-performing stock during that period. The dude is still widely regarded as one of the great business minds of the century, and Mark Robichaud's 2002 work, Cable Cowboy, is frequently mentioned as one of the best business books ever written. When you actually read the book, though, you quickly learn that Malone actually counted very few fans in his early days running TCI. When he took over as CEO at the age of 29, what the fuck am I doing with my life, the rural cable company was teetering on bankruptcy. Malone, who spent his entire life on the East Coast, set off with his wife for the cable capital of Denver, Colorado. The TCI guys fancied themselves cowboys due to the location and the rough-and-tumble nature of the business. Hence, the book's title, Cable Cowboy. Many years later, he would become known as one of the biggest ranchers in the West. But in those days, he was just a guy shoveling cattle crap. At TCI, things went from bad to worse almost immediately. Malone had taken out a loan to buy shares of TCI when he was named to the top job, which at the time sold for 7 bucks. Within a year, the stock sank down to a dollar, rendering Malone personally bankrupt on paper. The bank quietly agreed not to call the loan, by the way. Malone's dark and blunt sense of humor provided some cheer as the fiasco wore on, during his commute to work, Malone passed by a cattle farm and often noticed a lone steer surveying the landscape from atop a giant mountain of manure. That's me, Malone said to himself, on top of a pile of bullshit. As Malone turned around TCI from a small operator verging on bankruptcy into one of the biggest cable companies in the country, his hard-knuckle tactics would earn him few friends in government. The many nicknames from the haters included Darth Vader, Genghis Khan, and the godfather of the cable Cosa Nostra. At the height of his power during the late 1980s and 1990s, Malone frequently clashed with politicians and regulators who accused TCI 
of perpetuating a monopoly and using unfair business tactics. The showdown eventually resulted in the 1992 Cable Act. TCI's stock would underperform for years before Malone sold the company to AT&T in 1998. Any of ring a bell today? For several years now, politicians have ramped up their rhetoric against big tech. Multiple polls show that the American public broadly supports increased regulation and a majority favor breaking up these companies entirely. If cable's history is any guide, major new legislation is likely coming within several years. Although Wall Street today venerates Malone as a financial wizard of Oz, his ideas were initially disregarded. At the time, businesses were valued on earnings, or net income, but Malone argued that the cable business should instead be valued on cash flow. As TCI and other cable companies wired up the country, they made big capital expenditures and incurred depreciation expenses that made them unprofitable on an accounting basis. However, once built, the cable systems generated huge cash flow that could be funneled into growth. Further, because TCI technically lost money, the whole scheme was extremely tax-efficient. Without any income to tax, cable companies could preserve their cash flow for investment and growth. Minimizing taxes, or quote, leakage of economic value, as Malone later put it, would become known as one of the cable godfather's best-known moves. In many ways, Malone's ideas paved the way for the financing of today's startup and tech scene. During the 1970s, Malone's case for cash flow-based metrics was hugely controversial, but today it's widely accepted. In the late 1990s, a young CEO named Jeff Bezos would make similar arguments about Amazon's negative earnings strategy. Now, the MBA crowd hangs on to the godfather's every word. Speaking of MBA, for those who have never been to business school, books like Cable Cowboy make for a pretty good substitute. Indeed, probably a better and cheaper choice in many cases. Aside from the signature tax planning and complex financial engineering that still gets Wall Street guys worked up into a hot lather, Malone also excelled at negotiation and strategy. Watching the soft-spoken Malone in action during his lectures, you might not think so. My impression is that he's actually rather shy, a point touched on several times in the book. But what he did possess was an uncanny ability to sniff out what motivated the other guy and come up with creative, mutually profitable partnerships and deals. Malone, who turned 80 earlier this year, remarked in a recent interview that he's, quote, getting long in the tooth. Maybe so, but he'll always remain a classic. I still haven't seen Gone with the Wind, but at least I could say I've read Cable Cowboy. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed that. Just some disclaimers here because we need to cover our asses. The Tycoonist is for informational purposes only. Opinions are the author's own. Nothing in this newsletter constitutes investment advice. Do your own due diligence. This is a paid endorsement for public.com. Public.com is a registered broker-dealer, member, FINRA, and SIPC. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. All right? Got that, guys? Okay, very good. I'll see you next week.